Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. In today's episode, I will be breaking down the most recent episode of Your Honor, the penultimate episode of the entire series, part 19, and then I will be discussing it with Sona. And later in the episode, I had somehow forgotten this despite talking about this show multiple times, Poker Face wrapped up its season, a very successful season with a very entertaining final episode. And I'll be breaking down that episode as well and discussing it with Celia, getting her impressions of the season and of the episode itself. And if you're only here for the Poker Face breakdown and you're not watching Your Honor, check the show notes for a timestamp. That coverage should begin right after the episode breakdown of Your Honor and just jump ahead 50 minutes. Other news for our podcast, the Academy Awards are this Sunday, and I wanted to get this out there. This is something that just popped up on Amazon Prime arbitrarily. Do check out this most recent Monday's episode in which I broke down the top 10 Academy Award nominated films for Best Picture, my preferences from first to last, my favorite to least favorite. Near the bottom of that list, but still a very strong film, was Sarah Polly's Women Talking. And that has just popped up on Amazon Prime. They're making it available to stream for free to anybody. So if you have the Amazon Prime app on your phone or on your smart TV, do check out Women Talking, a very good film that is available, but only through Monday, I believe. So just a special for the Academy Awards to allow people to catch up on that film. And it's definitely worth watching. Beautiful to look at, featuring terrific performances. It deals with some dark material, but it is based on a true story. And if you're looking for something thought-provoking to watch over the weekend, or if you just want to catch up on some of these Academy Award-nominated films, here's a perfect opportunity to watch something, a quality film, and it's practically free. You know, I think almost everybody has Amazon Prime, so hey, it is practically free. Also, the second part of You has premiered just yesterday. I've not watched any of this, and I have not spoken to Sona yet. I am pre-recording this section of our podcast, so wondering if she caught up on it, and I'll get her feedback. If not this week, then maybe next week once she's caught up. I'm sure that Celia and my wife and Sona will all be binging that show pretty soon. And although I'm out on that show, I've tried to watch it, by the way, entertainingly. Longtime listeners would have heard me trying desperately multiple times to get into that show and failing miserably at it. But I would like to perhaps have them discuss it together on the show and I can referee the conversation and ask my own questions since I'm kind of out of the loop with what happened in this season. I did intentionally spoil myself on the twist in that season. And I, as a bystander, found it a little bit of a disappointing twist. But what did you all think if you've already binged the show? And I can't wait to hear what they think, given where the series landed for this current season. And despite their viewership being down, I am pretty sure they will bring it back for at least one more season to give it a final farewell. Your Honor wraps up next week. This very Monday, check out our episode discussing The Last of Us. I will have an instant reaction, hopefully on Sunday night, to the episode. Probably will have a bonus episode somewhere in the middle of the week where Celia and I will discuss the finale, get her thoughts on the finale. She's been a bigger fan of the show than I have. I've been a little more out on it in general, despite these excellent individual episodes. I'm very curious to know how I land on the whole series, and I'll be getting her feedback in the middle of the week, also discussing any reactions to the Academy Awards, and maybe discussing Daisy Jones as well, a show that I continue to watch, by the way, despite the fact being not that enthused by it. I feel like it's a bit of a missed opportunity. If you are like me and you're primarily watching that show because you just love that moment of creativity, watching that spark on screen. I have some documentaries and some fictional 
movies and series that I think do a better job of exploring that specific topic. And later in the month, we kick off two most highly anticipated shows of the year, Succession and its final season. Now that it's the final season, that has definitely bumped up to number one. My most anticipated question of the year is how that series will land. One of my favorite series of the past decade or so. And also Yellow Jackets, a show that came out of nowhere last year, became a bit of a phenomena, has probably only grown in the interim year. And I felt that season one ended on a ambiguous note in the fact that the show could be a huge success or it could kind of fail on its ambitions or maybe lack of ambitions. So it's in this interesting in-between. And I'm really curious to see how they expand it in season two. I think the creative forces behind that did a great job of teasing out this mystery in season one. And now that they have to start answering some of those questions, I believe they can't just continuously raise more mysteries for the show to be successful. Now that things have to become a little more concrete, I am very curious to see if they are able to expand this world successfully. And that also begins in about two weeks. In between, we have the finale of Your Honor, and I will be republishing some of the conversations we had last year around the finale of Succession, and of course, around the finale of Yellow Jackets as well. So subscribe so you know when all those episodes become available. As always, reach out to us if you have feedback, need some introduction at gmail.com. So let's get into episode 19 of Your Honor, the ninth episode of the second season, just called part 19. Very easy to keep track of the numbering on this, on this show, of course. Title breakdowns are unnecessary. All my regrets. There was a lot of things that I wish I could take back. But the one I thought about the most, the one I thought about every day, was that moment at the marina when you you put a gun to my head because you thought I was driving the car. You thought that I killed your son. Only I knew that it was Adam. I didn't have to stop you. I could have just let you pull the trigger. And Adam's secret would have died with me. So as the episode begins, we see that Michael, Elizabeth, and Thea are all having breakfast, and they're heading out to court. Michael says he can't make it. Elizabeth says she understands, but she actually doesn't. Michael has other things to do that day. Meanwhile, the Baxters are also heading to the courtroom, or actually, it's Gina and her father. Jimmy and Carlo actually stay behind, running business at the hotel. We see Lee and Eugene. He's getting ready to enter the courtroom, dressed up in a suit. She says they have to focus on the goal, which is for him to walk out of the court a free man. How the hell is that going to happen? I guess that's the mystery, maybe the biggest mystery of the end of this show. Another mystery is, this is the actual court proceedings. I had speculated with Sona last week. What are we seeing in the coming attractions? Could this actually be the actual court proceedings? If that's the case, this is months after last week's episode. And it does seem like some time has passed considering the conversation between Michael and Jimmy. But it doesn't seem like a lot of time has passed. Is this such a scandalous turn of events <laughs> that this whole thing's been accelerated? I guess it's not impossible that they tried to get this to court ASAP, but you figure there had to be some kind of grand jury. There had to be just process that would delay this by months. I mean, multiple months. I have to get Sona's opinion on 
is there any way that this timeline could make sense? In the courtroom, Sophia makes eye contact with her grandfather. He smiles at her. She does not smile back. This is obviously still tough on the Baxters. It turns out Michael has been planning to meet with Jimmy today. He says he has a personal conversation to have. There's no tension here. So once again, it does seem like some amount of time has passed. Jimmy asks Carlo to leave the room so that he can have some alone time with Michael. Michael tells him, I just want to let you know that I'm not trying to replace you. Jimmy says, do you want to go for a ride? Not necessarily a offer you want to take for someone that had a gun to your head not that long ago. While they're in the car ride, Olivia starts texting Michael. Where are you going? What is your plan? He just texts back a question mark. And since the phone is out, Jimmy says, hey, do you have any of those pictures of my grandson? I'd love to see them. And Michael, of course, hands over the phone, terrified that a text is going to come in. Michael, you have to turn on your do not disturb settings. Create a special do not disturb setting for I'm currently in the car with a sociopath. Do not disturb or send help ASAP. <laughs> that GPS feature turned out to be very fortunate for him just an episode ago. Back in court, the state makes its case. Oh, I forgot to mention, Charlie is here in attendance as well. In the aftermath of the ambush of the Desire Safe Houses last week, we see that Chris has tracked down Lil Mo and is trying to recruit him. Lil Mo says, even if Monique is slipping, and even though he's out, he's Desire for life. He's loyal. And Chris says to him, we are Desire. An interesting way to flip things around. Instead of saying, you think you're loyal to the gang because you're loyal to Monique, what if we pull off this coup d'etat, then we are desire, and then we are loyal to ourselves. An interesting, implicit proposition there. Jimmy and Michael meet where there's breaking ground for the Baxter district, and they have a really interesting exchange here. Jimmy has never smeared Michael's reputation, and Michael has protected Jimmy in the same way. You could have told her, but you decided not to. Why? By the time we learned she was pregnant, she'd already been through so much. I want to protect her memory of Adam. By doing so, you also protected me. Thank you. I did it for her. But uh, I am curious. You didn't tell her about the thing I've done? I always had such a strong belief of right and wrong, and... I just don't want to be the judge about that anymore. Meanwhile, during these court proceedings, a district attorney has made a compelling case, pretty much irrefutable, that Eugene went to the hotel with the intention of killing one person and inadvertently killed another person. That is, via transference, first-degree premeditated murder. So what kind of defense is Lee going to make that would get him exonerated? So we had wondered last week what could possibly be her strategy. She might be using Desiato's corrupt judge as an indication of the corruption of the system. You have Rudy having committed suicide after shooting Eugene in the open. A terrible decision. He should have at least worn a mask or something, in my opinion, by the way. And she recalls the levees breaking, of course, the disaster of Hurricane Katrina and how it flooded the city. The levees are supposed to hold. 
But when they don't, don't trust anyone. Don't trust the police when they tell you that this time they got it right. Don't trust the witnesses who have ulterior motives and every reason to lie to your faces. Don't trust that robe. I promise you, it's just a piece of cloth. As for the lawyers, do I even need to say it? <laughs> Here's the wildest part of all. Despite the police force that attacked him, the justice system that failed him, and the city that turned its back on him, Eugene Jones has chosen to trust you. Please take care of this child. So basically she's going with the conspiracy theory defense. What are they covering up? They might show you a lot of evidence. Just don't believe anything. Do your own research, people. It's QAnon logic defense. And of course, the irony is there is a giant conspiracy within this show. But of course, irrefutable that Eugene actually did commit this crime. So which side of these two truths will win out? Jimmy ends up making a pretty interesting proposal to Michael. I have to tell you that I could not have imagined that there would be an attractive offer between these two just last episode, but I find this to be a very convincing offer. It's about second chances. You, Michael, lost your status, this disgraced judge and lawyer disbarred, but here's your second chance. Baby Rocco has connected him to Michael, and rather than running away from this connection, maybe it's an opportunity. He wants Michael to come on board as his consigliere. Michael says, I don't want to commit more crimes. And Jimmy says, no, I mean for the legitimate business, for this new district. Now, this is a very attractive offer, by the way. On paper, I could see the appeal to Michael. It allows him to be close to the family. It allows him to keep an eye on Sophia and the baby and maybe steer the family away from its worst tendencies. But of course, we also know drugs are being run through those ports, at least during this transitional period, during the construction of the Baxter district. And of course, Jimmy's not being fully upfront about all of this with Michael. But does he want that? That's the question that remains here. Is Jimmy just playing Michael or is he honestly seeing this as an opportunity? Honestly, I don't know. And if anything, it might be both things at the same time. It's a way to keep him close, the way to bring Sophia back into the fold, potentially a way to increase his leverage over Michael, who's still a threat to him just because of some of the things he knows. But despite all that, they are both grandfathers. They are both connected to this baby. And maybe he would be more than happy if everything worked out. Little Mo makes a pretty interesting point to Big Mo. When we joined the gang, you said we had to be all in or all out. Well, you haven't been all in, Monique, in quite some time. You've been distracted with your girlfriend, with that club, with wanting to go legit. And her foot soldiers have been the ones who've been taking the hits while she's been dreaming of a different life. Well, maybe it's time for you to step away. You blew up a good deal so you could impress your girl. How's that working out for you? You got to be really feeling yourself to walk in here talking shit. What'd they get to you? You never should have made me a free agent. Well, that's your justification for being disloyal. Loyalty's earned. So is betrayal. Oh, you here to give me a philosophy lesson? Lil Mo? I'm here to give you a message. From Chris. And from me. 
a long time ago. You said when it comes to desire, it's all in or all out. You haven't been all in for a while. It's time to get out. And she does have that opportunity now. She can go legit and she can disappear into the sunset and have a happy domestic life. Gina says, I saw Eugene point the gun at my son and hit Adam. Pretty straightforward. Not too many questions there. And I think Lee does a great job just as a layman here watching this show. I think she does a really good job of raising many questions here. So coincidentally, your son was in the same prison as Kofi. Kofi was the person suspected of having killed Rocco in a car accident. You're the one who requested that he be transferred. All of this makes her very emotional and will probably raise many questions about just the, how deep this conspiracy goes in the jury's minds, which of course is part of what she's trying to achieve. But also in this emotional state, she throws in Gina's face, how did you not react at all when you saw that gun come out, pointed at your son, and uses Gina's motherly defense of saying, I would take a bullet, I would have died to protect my son. And Lee simply says, I believe it. I believe that's exactly the kind of mother you are. So I think you didn't react because you didn't actually see that gun. Great way to knock down this eyewitness testimony and simultaneously plant the seed of this conspiracy in the minds of the jury. Kudos to Lee <laughs> in my ignorant TV version of lawyering through which I'm perceiving this exchange. As the day in court wraps up, the DA mentions that he wants to add Michael Desiato as a witness. Gina's testimony has made him feel a little shaky about not having additional eyewitnesses. Interestingly, Desiato was not there when the shot was fired. So is the DA making a miscalculation here that Michael is going to give testimony that is beneficial to them, just assuming that he's going to say what they expect, given the fact that it was his son who died? Because it is very risky putting Desiato on the stand, and Lee knows about all the skeletons in this closet. Lee knows he was compromised in that case. Although Lee still feels this is a wild card and doesn't want to allow him as a witness. But the judge leaves it open as to whether he'll allow this witness or not. They need to provide a memo to make their case to him by the morning. Michael's back in the hotel meeting with Jimmy and yet another well-written scene here in the episode discussing how prison gave him a lot of time to contemplate what could have been different. And he thinks of all the moments where things could have changed. And Sona spoke to this in the concept in law about what is the root cause? What's the beginning pivotal moment that leads to the crime? And Michael has probably played out all these different scenarios in his mind and what could have been all these different pivot points. He could have allowed Jimmy to shoot him when they were out at the piers. And he was the only one that knew the truth about Adam. So he could have sacrificed himself and maybe Adam would have been saved. Maybe it's his job as a parent to sacrifice. And he wonders what he would be sacrificing if he did take Jimmy up on his offer. All the unforeseen consequences. The true test of family isn't loyalty, but sacrifice. If I join you, if I become part of your family, I fear the sacrifices I would have to make. No one's putting a gun to your head. 
Sometimes there's a gun to your head and you don't even know it. Jimmy does not like this. He frowns to this, not only because Michael is basically turning down his offer, but maybe because he worries that there might be a gun to his head too with the Calabres and Gina and his father-in-law potentially all aligning against him, which does parallel, of course, what's happening with Monique. Maybe the only thing that kind of unifies these two sides of the story with just one episode to go. Jimmy actually sends Carlo to drive Michael home. And maybe this is a miscalculation, by the way, on his part. Michael starts feeling out Carlo. What's this deal really about? Am I going to run the legitimate business? Puts a little salt in his wound, by the way, saying, oh, so you're just driving for the family now? Carlo's like, nope, I'm working my way up. I'm gaining my dad's trust. And he says, does this mean that I would be involved with the legitimate side of the business and you're on the criminal side? I don't want to get in business with you because you get caught. Carlos says, not anymore. And then he mentions, I don't want to go into business with the Calabres. Carlos says a few interesting things here that his dad may not see himself as a criminal, but he's like that person who wakes up in the morning with a hangover saying he'll never drink again, but of course, inevitably will. Michael says, so the Baxters are just middlemen now for the Calabres. And very entertainingly, Carlos says, hey, if I leave a bag on your front steps and you never look at that bag and then someone else comes up and grabs it, are you really committing a crime? <laughs> Michael gets dropped off at this point and reminds him that, yes, indeed, this is a crime. It's called smuggling. <laughs> and ignorance is not a defense. We see that heroin dealer from Houston roll up meeting with Desire 2.0. This is Chris. He says, I don't like working with people who I don't know. Little Mo shows up and he says, okay, well, that's somebody I know. Hands him the drugs and starts counting the money. Chris says, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship to which he says, let's take this one deal at a time. You guys obviously have some internal issues still going on, to which, of course, Monique enters the scene, case in point, and takes his money and leaves. Turns out that Little Mo and Big Mo have come to some agreement, and they are cleansing the Desire Gang of any of these rebel members, including Chris, who won't take a gun to his chest, puts it right to his head, and says, go ahead, Little Mo, pull the trigger. But he can't. But Big Mo can, and she kills him off. R.I.P., Chris. God save the queen, indeed. Fia goes to meet with Jimmy and asks him about the true history of the family. He admits to most of it. Her grandfather was the leader of the mob previously in New Orleans. He did inherit that business, although he claims that it's mostly legitimate. She says, but you're not violent anymore? He says, when he needs to be. And she asks him, did you kill the Jones family? He says, I investigated it. It was a gas leak. Not our understanding up until this point, although I guess theoretically it could have been a gas leak but I'm pretty sure he's lying here. This seems to soothe her concerns, and she tells him that she's met a member of the DA and that he is currently under investigation. So whatever he's doing with the Calabri family, he needs to stop. Towards the end of the episode, we see Olivia and Michael arrive by car. Michael basically just tells her to keep an eye on Carlo. He's going to make a move soon, facilitating the Calabri family. She taunts Michael a little bit here as he's entering the house, saying, be honest with me. You did like this a little bit, didn't you? He just kind of rolls his eyes, but maybe he did. Maybe he likes playing this spy game. And at that moment, Charlie calls and mentions that Baxter has pulled out of the deal. This is blowing up all of Olivia's plans. She seems shocked by this. I'm actually a little surprised. I was hoping that this was somehow, she was such a super genius at playing this fourth dimensional chess that she had factored all these things into it. It would have been fun to see this master plan fall into place, but I guess that's not the show we're watching. And of course, after the warning from Fia, Baxter is pulling out the entire development deal is off the menu. Next, we see Janelle. She's performing at the club. Mo walks in. 
Janelle's singing Cry Me a River. She can't even finish the song. And backstage, Lil Mo is kind of annoyed by the situation, does not want Big Mo distracted yet again. When they're alone, Monique says to Janelle that she needs to accept all of her. She bought the club for her dad, for her granddad, for all the things that happened to her family in the past. But the stage is for Janelle. And what's the club without the stage? But she needs Janelle to accept her, all of her. And this is finally the proposal that's been teased since we've seen that ring. But Janelle rejects the proposal, saying that she's the best version of herself when she's with Monique. And she wishes that Monique understood that as well. And then here we get to the very end of the episode. Elizabeth and Michael, exhausted from the day, suddenly there's a knock at the door. It's Lee. And Lee is giving Michael a heads up. You might have to take the stand. He says, well, what do you want me to do? I don't want any part of this. She said, you might have to. And if he does, she basically tells him, I want you to lie. Elizabeth is watching all of this shocked. She just wants Lee to leave. Elizabeth still doesn't know the full story of Michael's involvement in all of these shady dealings from last season. And Lee says, at least set one thing right. Let Eugene go free. Elizabeth, of course, does not want that to happen. Eugene is the person who killed her grandson. Michael says he can't lie anymore. He has to tell the truth. And Lee storms out. And that's where we leave things for next week. What is Michael going to say on the stand? What impact will it have on the future of all these characters? How do things end up internally within Desire? Is the coup really dead now that Chris has been offed? And as far as scenes for next week, no scenes. So we're going in blind. Will this be mostly in the courtroom? I'm not sure. I have many questions, many follow-up questions, many legal questions to ask Sona. So let's get into that conversation right now. All right. So Sona, I have many, many legal questions to ask you about today's episode. <laughs> I too have many legal questions. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I'm glad we're on the same page. Before that, though, two things I wanted to mention to you. One was you, the final part two. I think there's only four episodes in this back half, almost half of the season. So I don't know if you got a chance to watch any of that. Probably not. I think it just premiered yesterday. But just... I think it just came out yesterday, yes. but it's my project for the weekend. I'm very curious to see where you land on it. So maybe we'll have that conversation next week. Sure. Another thing I wanted to recommend is that uh, Poker Face wrapped up yesterday. And I actually will have in this episode a breakdown of that episode and just a conversation with, with Celia. Very satisfying finale. Really? Surprisingly, it's almost like the show has been very much so a procedural the whole entire time, the kind of these episodic um, standalone episodes. And uh, there's some really interesting character development that happens at the end, tying back to the first episode, obviously. And uh, Celia even said this in our conversation, but you could basically just watch the first episode and the last episode. You could, but there's a lot of interesting little things. Like there is, <laughs> There are little character development along the way, of course. I'll have that conversation later in this episode. <laughs> so now, first of all, from the conversation in the courtroom, it looks like Lee is saying this is weeks. I mean, this is weeks that they could have modified. The witness list. I assume it's been more than weeks. But even if it's been two months, this seems like a very, very quick turnaround on this court proceedings, no? Well, as you know, <laughs> I am not a criminal lawyer. So um, I can't speak to the speed at which criminal trials generally move. Although, you know, people are guaranteed the right to a speedy trial um, by law, although we know in our area that definitely doesn't always happen. <laughs> no, it's like a year. Um, right. So civil litigation, which is my area, moves much more slowly. Mm, yes. This did not phase me. I think it is feasible 
once you understand you're going to trial, there are a bunch of documents you need to prepare and file uh, regarding the way in which you expect the trial to proceed. And one of those things is a list of everyone you expect to call that should have been submitted several weeks prior to the trial. That part tracks for me. Yes. My critique, and, and by the way, I did like this episode very much. I did too. The critique I have of it is that the show is trying to have it both ways. If they have been planning this trial and we assume there's already been a grand jury, et cetera, and so forth, even if that was pretty accelerated, I'll buy it. They somehow got this all in within two months. I feel like other scenes in this show, it's as if we are one week past last episode. So it, it's kind of trying to split yeah. it both ways where we're trying to say that at least two or three months have passed. But then I don't accept the fact that, for example, Big Mo and Little Mo are having the conversation they had three months later. This would have been a conversation they would have had five days later. She's looking into a mirror that's been smashed. Like what? She's still looking at the same <laughs> smashed mirror two months later? Like it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. I am sure there are timeline issues. The only thing I can say in defense of this show is that I have watched other shows and gotten more hung up on how much time yes. is passing, yeah. as we've oh, yeah. discussed, I, yeah. um, mm -hmm. where I just feel like, yes, is time standing still or is time speeding past? It's completely <laughs> exactly. unclear. For some reason in this show, it's not flagging for me as an issue. So whatever they're doing, they're smoothing over it in a way that is not um, alerting me to some sort of upsetting disconnect. <laughs> And by the way, that story might be happening in a different timeline. So maybe it's going to intersect the end of the story, but we might be seeing two different timelines. But the show has never played with timelines before. So I don't know. This was confusing to me. Maybe she just never went back. She's just like, I refuse to go look at the mess inside of that place for the next two months. Hey. <laughs> it's just like, you know, when you make a mess in your apartment or something, you're like, I don't want to deal with that. When I come back from my vacation. <laughs> Too close to home, Victor. <laughs> <laughs> I hit it. Did I strike a nerve? Did I strike a nerve? <laughs> what did you think about Lee's defense here, her opening statement? I thought she did a fantastic job, uh, given that it is completely clear. <laughs> exactly. <It's> obvious. <laughs> what happened? She's doing a great job of muddying the waters with mm -hmm. everybody's personal agendas. I thought it was as effective as it could possibly be, given the situation. In my breakdown, I called it the QAnon defense. She's been getting people, do your own research. <laughs> There's a lot of suspicious stuff going on here. Exactly. All coincidences? I don't know. <laughs> By the way, she's actually correct that all these things are actual conspiracy. But it also is a fact, I guess, competing realities, because there's also a fact that he walked in there and shot someone in the neck. Mm -hmm. Maybe my favorite scene in the whole episode was when Jimmy's making him the offer. Now, are you talking about the conversation in the car or the conversation in the hotel? A couple of very interesting conversations, I think. But the one I specifically was going to mm -hmm. ask about was in the hotel when- I thought he, that was a great scene. Yeah. I wanted to bring it up because you've brought up that idea. I, I forget what the name of it is, but that concept in the law where it's like the moment that things could have changed. And of mm -hmm. course, he being a lawyer is talking about how all the time he spent in prison and what he had was a lot of time to think about all these alternate scenarios, which I mm -hmm. can empathize with. I've done that myself. Of course, I think we all have. And he talks about if I had just allowed you to shoot me when I, he was at the docks that day, it could have saved Adam's life. Michael's whole vibe right now is I don't care if I live or die. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> right? So if that's really how you feel, you would be thinking, well, if it doesn't matter because of how things worked out in this version of my life, that would have been the better decision to make. Um, I thought this whole scene was really great, really 
interesting to watch. I loved the uh, idea of just because there's not a gun to your head doesn't mean there's not a gun to your head kind of thing. Exactly. I and the Jimmy's, really re- Jimmy's reaction to that, right? Jimmy's thinking that there, mm-hmm. he, he may have a gun to his head of his own, right? I just thought all of it was uh, was really compelling and very well acted. Yeah, I thought so too. And good writing. Uh, a, a few scenes here that really were standout writing jobs, I think. And also to go to a different scene, I really felt the anxiety of Jimmy holding Michael's cell phone. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> with, with the impending text message coming. I didn't get a chance to catch exactly what that little preview said. Did you? Oh, it said like, where are you going or something? And uh, you know, okay. she's in there as bestie. It's an annoying <laughs> way that she put herself into the phone. But um <laughs> <laughs> but she said, yeah, she's saying like, where are you going? Which by the way, was really annoying to me because she first says, what's your plan? And right. And he answers with sec- a question mark. Right. And then the uh, response is, where are you going? So she knows he's on the move with right. Jimmy. And I'm like, not the time to be texting yes. for God's sakes, Olivia. <laughs> right. It's the worst version of when you so- show someone a photo on your phone and then they just start scrolling through all oh my your God, other yes. photos. <laughs> And I am not even the person that takes those types of photos, but who knows, you know, what all they could find themselves in that you don't want to have to explain. Or I take screenshots of things left and right because it's more convenient for me than finding something over again. And that anxiety builds up like in the pit of my stomach. So I can't even imagine when you feel like it's a life or death situation, (laughs) the anxiety of someone holding your phone. The whole dynamic between Carlo and Michael and Jimmy here about going legit. And how do you think that all played out? Because you see Carlos saying, oh, that's very interesting that my dad thinks he's legit. He's like an alcoholic who says, I'm never going to drink again. Of course, they're going to drink again. And then Michael is trying to get a feel for whether this is legitimately the case or not. But what did you think about this? Because my general critique I'd have here as well, some of the best scenes in the show are this conversation. And then at the end, when Sophia, and we probably want to talk about this too, Sophia warns Mm-hmm. her dad that there's an investigation and he pulls out of the deal um the uh, waterfront deal a lot of this seems interesting if michael was seriously contemplating this deal right because this actually isn't a lifeline for him he could be close to his sophia he could be close to the baby he could help jimmy go legit potentially so all of these things are things he probably wants to hear by the end basically it felt like this was all just plot machinations to get the waterfront deal blown up. And this is just basically setting up those dominoes. Interesting conversations are kind of moot by the end, because if he backs out of that waterfront deal, then, I mean, I guess he still has the hotel, but primarily he's still a gangster, right? Is that your feel too? Yes. I mean, this isn't something that you can opt out of, first of all. Second, I am assuming there are a lot of ongoing schemes that are not 100% legal that support their life. And I don't think you can just flip a switch and get out of those things. You know, you would have to start winding things down one by one. I don't think you can just selectively wake up one day and say, I'm not doing anything illegal anymore because too many things are already in motion, I would imagine. For example, one of the subtext of the show, The Sopranos, is how the mob kind of disappeared, not because all these people decided to be angels or because the prosecution of these um, mobsters became more severe, which both of those things actually did happen, but primarily because they got into legitimate businesses. And at some point when the legitimate business is 80% of your revenue, you basically 
have to stop being a gangster because you are damaging your bread and butter, right? As opposed to where things are flipped the other way. Like you think about Monique as a mirror image to this. She wants to go to legit, legit, but the vast majority of her cash is still coming from the drug dealing. She cannot stop doing the drug dealing because it supports everything else. So I think that Jimmy also wanted to be able to call himself a legitimate businessman, but he needs to be big enough to not fail, basically. First of all, I question that the hotel is 100% on the up and up. So I don't think the hotel is a clean business. It's probably all um, money laundering, right? I mean, a hotel is right. a great way to launder money, right? Yeah. Speaking so I don't of, think- Remember Ozark? We talked about Ozark. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. So I don't think it's you know, as easy as saying, I just do the hotel now. That's all I do because I don't think the hotel is clean. But again, this is based on my assumption. I'm not sure that was ever actually said. So True. theoretically, it's possible that the hotel is a legitimate business. Yeah. I am reading into his desire to be legitimate and uh, what that- Baxter district could have been, but I do think that it was a direction he wanted to go in specifically when he was saying like they could use his ports to smuggle the drugs, the New York mobs, but only until the district was built. Mm -hmm. I think at that point, he really wants to say that at least here we are a legit business and then using that as a lever to get out of these other things. I do think that that's what he wants <sighs> to. And by the way, Carlo makes that analogy of him saying like, oh yeah, I'm sure he said that, but did he like, does he know himself, basically? And, that, and that's a question that remains. He doesn't see himself as a drug dealer, right? right? right. He's above mm -hmm. that. I don't, thousand ways that the mafia engages in crime. And right. they are not all drug dealing. They are no-show right. contracts. Right. They are, right? Construction industry overall. Maybe somebody could pull them out of every single aspect of that. But it just seems this whole Baxter District idea is premised on, like, being a bounty for the mob. My opinion is that I think that he does see it as a, a way to make himself more legitimate. Like he wants to be in the newspaper standing next to the mayor, even though, of course, his father-in-law would also be standing there. So that's questionable. At the same time, you're absolutely correct. That's just more opportunities to launder money, right? You have a whole entire Disney district, a little shave off a little waste here, a little bit there. All of that could be hiding, you know, uh, huge amounts of cash uh, that is transacting illegally, right? Exactly. And I also found this interesting that at the end of that conversation in the car with Carlo, Carlo goes, well, let's say that someone leaves a bag on your on your steps right. and you don't look in the bag and someone else comes and gets it. Are you committing a crime? And Michael's like, yes, smuggling <laughs> and being ignorant is not a defense. Okay. In right. parallel with all of this, someone wanting to go legit and getting pulled back in is the whole story with Desire and Monique, of course. I still have the open question as to like, how is this tying together with everything else in the show? Other than this interesting paralleling that we see between her struggle to manage this criminal enterprise and a legitimate side and a personal life side, which parallels very much Jimmy's situation. But other than that, like thematic connection, it seems like it doesn't intersect essentially with the other plots on this in the story. So more con concretely, it's interesting what happens here where she reclaims control of the gang. But I have a question for you. This is the big question mark I had in the whole episode, honestly, is when she's in their former HQ looking at that broken glass still after a couple of months, never fixed it for whatever reasons, or even swept up the floor, apparently. Lil Mo shows up behind her and tells her, mm -hmm. you said you have to be 100% in to be a member of Desire. And I am 100% committed still. And I think you took your eye off the ball. It's time for you to step down. Now, does that mean step down for him? Does that mean for him and Chris? Because him and Chris seem to have come to some kind of agreement earlier in the episode. But of course, then in the end, she's the one who 
long live the queen is you know back in control and even kills chris with something that little mo was not able to pull that trigger so what agreement did they come to and what was little mo trying to do there was he trying to wake her up there is a point in many dramas where i feel like the plot has gotten away from me a little bit <laughs> okay um maybe um i'm not paying close enough attention maybe it is a true plot hole this is something that like I think I understood what happened, but then I don't quite follow why it happened. I took this to mean he was telling her it's time for her to step down as the head of desire. Right. Exactly. But then the turnaround, I guess, you know, a conversation that we don't see between the two Mo's, they reconstruct what the future should be. Somehow now Mo is back on her side. With the idea that like, well, this is my family. What did you expect when right. she had specifically said to him, you're not family anymore or whatever <laughs> right. she had said, right? Exactly. right? I mean, it all was a little bit like head scratching to me as to how this came about. And I guess the fact that we didn't see that conversation is what makes it confusing. It's not that it's unbelievable to me, but I would right. have liked to have my hand held a little bit more spelling out how this came to be. I felt the exact same way. This is the, for me, the most confusing moment in the episode, in an episode that I think is pretty well written for, for that very reason. They could have left things open where he's giving her a heads up that this is happening and that it's time for you to move aside. And then you could see that he takes her side in 11th hour being like, okay, blood is thicker than water. Or maybe I have more upside here. If Chris is the new gang member versus if I do this favor for her, like if we could see what his plotting and his decision-making, or if they came to some kind of agreement, is he going to inherit the gang? That's the other thing, right? He says, time for you to step aside. She says, maybe I do step aside at some point. He says that she says it's the Chris, but I do it on my own terms. Maybe she tells him that there is a time when he will inherit. And that's the agreement they come to. But we have to guess at that because it's not right. in the text at all. Yeah. It's not spelled out. It's not only that that scene theoretically would be missing, but like you said, what is given there is just like a fake out because it's like saying like you need to step aside and then the next time he's 100% on her side and they even had this whole thing planned out it, it seems to be and I think it's intentionally left that way so that there'll be a little suspense there in that sequence but how like she just shows up out of nowhere so it's not even like there was <laughs> any kind of real suspense there anyway so it's it's you know it's not like they're both there and Mo has to like turn the gun on one or the other and then we you know there's a reveal she just walks in and says nope <laughs> I'm still in charge. That, I'm like, okay, well, why didn't we have the other scene? Like you could yes. have literally cut the other scene out completely and we would have been in the same situation. So it's very, very strange. The uh, only other things I wanted to talk about, one is Sophia meeting with Jimmy and basically him admitting to almost everything except for blowing up the mm -hmm. Jones house. The gas but given leak. the fact that it was a gas leak, I mean, apparently it was a gas leak based on the investigation, although we assumed it was arson gas, you know, like someone intentional. Right gas leak and explosion. I mean, do you buy that for a second? He does seem to be telling her the truth, but you have to assume that's a lie, right? Because he did take credit for it before, but maybe you could say he was taking credit so that Gina would get off his back. <laughs> He's like, all right, I killed him. I killed him. <laughs> does it make you happy? <laughs> but I don't think so, right? I buy that <laughs> He's just lying to her at this point, right? I took it as him lying to her, yeah. especially with the setup of, you know, if you lie to me, you'll never see me again. But it did make me want to go back to revisit right. exactly how that came about. 
Me too. I actually felt the same way. It's so a colorable claim that he that <laughs> exactly. it was just a gas leak. I don't know. Like it's just lucky that they died, and he's just like, ah, oh, yeah, I did that. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Gina would be so happy. Oh, you killed someone for me. Thank you, darling. It's exactly what I wanted for our anniversary. So that's the next thing I wanted to mention is uh, so Olivia finds out that he's pulling out of this deal because he obviously knows that they're watching him. She gets that call from Charlie. And in my head, I still thought that this show, and maybe I'm just have a different anticipation of what the show is going to be here at the end. Olivia's plot is going to be revealed at the end, but she seems shocked by this twist. She's not expecting this at all. I mean, I guess this goes back to what I was saying earlier, that to me, he's got to be engaged in a million unlawful things. So while this would have been an easy thing to go with, if you really are looking for an insider in the family who's going to report things to you, the low-hanging fruit might be gone, but there's still a thousand other illegal things these people are doing. I didn't understand the complete devastation of it. I also felt that just the stupidity of Olivia's plan, if she didn't kind of bake this into her plan, she went and talked to Sophia about turning state's evidence as if there would no be no chance of right. that getting back to him. And right. if she was so concerned about this deal going through... She could have waited a little bit longer for someone who supposedly has been calculating this whole entire time. This was just really dumb to approach Sophia last week when she did. Yeah, agree. I mean, if you say there's a 20% chance she's going to go tell her dad, that blows up all your plans, like everything you've set up. Like, what's <laughs> that's a very stupid risk to take. Poor judgment on her part. Yes. Maybe a little cocky. A little, you know, Olivia's been a little cocky all season long. And this is maybe very the true. Yeah. Dumbest move here with this. And the last thing, so of course, Lee shows up and asks Michael to lie on the stand. And that was the question I was going to ask you, maybe the main question for this whole entire episode. Is Michael, even if he tells the truth, is he going to hurt the state case more than the defense's case? She's asking him to lie, but he could tell the truth and still potentially damage the state case very, very badly. So it seems like the state is also taking quite a risk here by putting him on the stand. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't entirely clear on why this would be so essential to the state's case necessarily, given all of the X factors involved. I mean, Lee knows everything, right? Lee can Mm -hmm. say, did you manipulate the case in Carlo's favor? Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Did you tamper with a witness and get him high? (laughs) <laughs> on heroin through his shoes. Yes, I did. <laughs> QAnon uh, defense works really, really well when you have this guy as a witness. And by the way, they have him up there as a eyewitness testimony. He was outside when the shot was fired. He did not see Eugene pull the trigger. Right. So what is mm. this seems like a terrible witness for the prosecution. I mean, I don't know why Lee is so concerned about getting him on the stand. I think she he will do more to strengthen their case than anything else. Could be. Plus, man, who want, who wants him to talk? If he really wants to be, I am Mr. Honesty from now on, he can throw so many people under the bus, the yes. police department, the DA's office, Charlie, obviously, right? And the Baxters. He can just like burn mm-hmm. them all to the ground. And of course, the Baxters are their foundational to the prosecution's case, ironically enough. And I guess that's all the setup for next week where they have no scenes for next week, by the way. So do you have any idea of what the shape of that will be? Obviously, Michael's going to talk, testify in the stand. Would you guess? Is that correct? Yeah, that's my my sense of things. And also there was a, a throwaway comment, I can't remember exactly what it was, that made it seem like he could just ignore the subpoena. And like, just to be clear, no, you should not ever 
ignore a subpoena. <laughs> and I mean, if anything, you could move to quash it. I'm assuming that if he will not willingly testify, they will subpoena him to testify. Right. And then since his thing seems to be all about doing the right thing now, he will show up. I honestly still don't know what they have in store for us in the finale, but I'm very curious. I don't know if it's going to be satisfying or not, to be completely honest at this moment, right, the way they right. set things up today, but I'm very curious to see how it all pays off. Yeah. Not. I mean, I think that the show is keeping a really good pace, you know, yep. so even if it's not satisfying, they have kept it moving. And I appreciate that. <laughs> this is my fantasy of how this is going to play out. They said, you know, we should do another season of this because I have this ending in, in, in mind and we should make it. And then that it will pay off. Unlike to throw another Showtime show under the bus, the Dexter First Blood, where I really felt like, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna drag this back out, this ten year old corpse, then uh, you must be like, we have such a great way to wrap things up. Right. And they're like, nah, we didn't even think about how to end it. I'm like, well, okay, well then, why did we do this? Why was the We're point of that? We're all just collecting a paycheck here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Purely paycheck motivated. I hope that's not the case. I really do think that they did have some plan in mind because most of the writing has been pretty smart. Most of the plotting has been pretty well done as well too. So I do hope they have something clever planned for next week, but I have no idea what that is. And I'm very curious to see what it'll be, even if it's bad. <laughs> I'm still curious to see. Yeah. I mean, this held my interest so far in a way that I did not expect it to, to be honest. So yep. I am, I have gotten my money's worth. I am satisfied. Right. No matter how bad the finale is, I think I'm satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that gives me pause is this thing that happened with Desire in this episode. Yes, where yes, like, off screen, apparently a very important conversation happened. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so hopefully they don't go to that well again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope that's not the case. I, I agree. Uh, and I do hope that they are able to tie that into the plot more fully. Yeah, that would be nice. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, one more week until then. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see that. All right, Celia. So you have just seen the season finale of Poker Face, an episode called The Hook. The Hook brings you back, as they mention here multiple times. That Blues Traveler song, they never play the song itself, but they quote it many times here in this episode. And I took so many notes on this episode and in general about the season itself that I thought it would be worth discussing. Before we get into this specific episode, just in general, like you said, you like this show. I think it's been very popular, by the way, so we probably don't have to make a sales pitch. But if you wanted to get someone who was reluctant to watch it, what would you tell them? Did you have any favorite episodes before the finale? I mean, maybe the finale was your favorite, but tell me what you thought. I, I would say the first episode was my favorite episode. So great. Yes. So, so good. And the finale also was one of my favorite episodes. That might be my two favorite episodes, actually, yeah. but I like the whole mm -hmm. show. You could watch it separately if you wanted to. You could watch it a little bit out of order also because the yep. concept is her running away from the mob who is right. after her. She is really good at being a loner and traveling the country and surviving and adapting because she has, first of all, this really badass personality 
it's not that she doesn't care. It's that she's so good at adapting to whoever she's speaking with that she can tune out the noise and just survive really in whatever environment she's in. But she also has a very strong sense of right and wrong and responsibility because she knows when people are lying, she knows what the truth is. And she's also very curious and very intelligent. And I would say competitive because she gets to the point where she has to discover the truth. So it's almost to her detriment sometimes. Yeah. Almost all the time to her detriment, because instead of riding out wherever she's at, because, you know, she's safe for now and she's comfortable and, she's making money somehow she has to burn bridges everywhere she goes when she decides she's going to right a wrong or just uncover the truth it's every time she's unable to ignore it yeah i like her yeah i like the show a lot and uh, i thought that the middle of the season got a little samey i mean like you said this is what happens with this is old school television, right? Where you would watch an episode of Friends or something. There were three or four episodes where people would get together or break up or whatever. And then the rest of the season was just like another one of those. And there were good ones and there were mediocre ones. And I think that's how this was. Actually, I thought they were all pretty good. A couple of them were probably, I'd say, before this run of the last three episodes, these final three have been very strong. Kind of in the middle of the season, they got a little flabby, I, I would say. Yeah, but the same is not bad. No, I agree. Even on the weaker episodes, you know. Absolutely. She's somewhere new. There's new people around her. She's has another job that she's performing to make money in the moment. Something happens that usually is very fascinating because Mm -hmm. these people have gotten away with murder and then she figures it out in the most ingenious ways sometimes. So it's always a good episode. But they're not all deep episodes that you would take notes on. Right. That the first and last episode are kind of like dense in a way that the other ones are not. But you're absolutely right. Even the weakest of all the episodes, I thought they're in the middle, are still really clever. It is a tried and true formula. It's the Columbo formula, right? Where you watch the murder happen and then you watch Columbo solve the murder, even though we already know, as the audience know what happened. She is, you know, the Columbo character. But there's an added layer, like you mentioned, a couple. One is that she's this like human lie detector. So it's really interesting to see how people, maybe one of my favorite things in the show, by the way, which I think is so smart, and we see it again in this episode, something very subtle and really smart in the show. You can almost rewatch the whole entire show and think about how everybody talks to her when they don't know she has this ability and she can call them out immediately. But then there's people who know she has this ability. As soon as a character discovers she has this ability, they literally write the character in a different way because they have to be careful of what they say to her. And they always stick to it. They do not cheat. And then there's another added layer. She sometimes has evidence. Like, I have evidence. I can get this guy right now. But she can't go to the cops. She can't reveal herself because she's on the run herself. There's three parts to it. She has to uncover the murder. She has to ask the right questions. She has to protect herself. And then she has to catch these people without being able to bring in the cops. I love how she always manages to find the crime. Yes. Like there's so many places. <laughs> Although it has been over go. a year. <laughs> it has been over a year. It's true. Very but like, yeah. I don't know if I was crossing the country and I don't know, working at the vitamin shop for a month and then working at the circus for a month. And then 
I don't think that everywhere I would go, there would be a murder that I had to solve. But she <laughs> always has a murder to solve. Yes. Well, she says she's been a death magnet this past year, right? That's literally what quote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I would say that if you are someone like her who's snooping all the time and can always tell when someone's lying, if you are roaming the countryside for an entire year for over almost a year and three months, right? By the end of it. But I guess she's in the hospital for the last two months. So it's over a year that she's wandering the country and you're just talking to people and you always know when they're lying. Wouldn't you probably stumble, stumble onto some shady murders at least a handful of times over the course of the year? Especially her. She cannot let it go. Every time someone lies, <laughs> she has to keep going and going. <laughs> yeah. She is also taking jobs that like you would take if you had no way of passing a background yeah, she's, check. She's surrounded you know? by other transient people. I, yes, yeah. you can't pass I, a background check. Yeah. So you're gonna do this thing for now. And she's working for people who are only hiring her because they're shady. If you really were to push on someone, you would be like, oh, they robbed the bank. Right. <laughs> they are in witness protection. But she just keeps running into murders. <laughs> right. I completely agree. I actually rationalized that early in the season that she is doing these transient jobs surrounded by desperate people who are also working off the books, either are at the end of their ropes or maybe are being taken advantage of because they are at the end of their ropes. So that all makes sense. However, that being said, after maybe the first four or five episodes when I thought that that would make sense, Towards the end, she's traveling with a rock band, which of course does expose you to a lot of people. But the murder is happening within the rock band itself. She's, you know, yeah. it, there's a there's a murder involving like <laughs> like semi famous people from a television show. She has, a, you know, a murder conspiracy within a movie studio and a special effects company. These are like millionaires killing each other, and she somehow stumbled upon them. But <laughs> see, regardless, yeah, she just <laughs> finds them <laughs> exactly. doing her temporary whatever she's doing in a moment to get by in a way it's understandable because people are just like okay fine you're hired like right. they're not right. looking into her they're hiring everyone in the same way you don't know who the hell these people are i can't remember their names i, I would see her running into problems if she was really going to inquire like how did you get to a, a a situation like this like where i am there's got to be something happening that where you're not up here you're you're here with me and it's always a murder I love it. <laughs> right. Always. Yeah. Thank but to that I point, let's let fun. I do too. I do too. And by the way, Sona has discussed this on the podcast as well. In a way, the fact that she is zigzagging across the entire country is way more believable that she keeps running into these shady people doing really shady things. When uh, Sona's analogy is, how about murder she wrote where this woman like lives in this like town in New Hampshire, how many hundreds of people, that show was on the air for like 12 years, how many hundreds of people died in that little town? Like that woman is truly a death <laughs> magnet, you know? <laughs> that place yeah. that place has to be the murder capital of America per capita. There's like it's 800 true. people. There's it's 800 true. people be... in that town. Like half of them are murderers, half of them are victims. <laughs> <laughs> or like other towns, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but they have an excuse because what? <laughs> yes, they had that's a town that's on top of something <laughs> the that hellmouth. was the hellmouth. The hellmouth, yeah, yeah. So like if you are on the hellmouth, that would suck. And yes, imagine that's... this girl shows up in the hellmouth. I would love that. Would... Next season here she is on the hell mouth just a little background on the episode itself so this one is written by ryan johnson so by the way ryan johnson wrote and directed the pilot episode and i believe the second one as well 
came back last week. Very good episode last week, by the way. Uh, Escape from Shit Mountain <laughs> was the name of the episode. And uh, he directed that one, but written by Lila and Nora Zuckerman, who are the showrunners of the show. So he directed last week's episode and he did not direct this week, but he wrote this week's episode, a very strong writing job, but not directed by him this time, actually directed by Janixa Bravo, who directed a movie called Zola a couple of years ago with Riley Keo, by the way, Daisy Jones herself. And uh, she gives an incredible performance. Actually, both of the leads in Zola are pretty incredible. It used to be available on HBO Max. I don't think it's available to stream right now. I don't think I've seen it. I actually reviewed it here on the podcast, but do track that down because it's such a great and interesting film and very funny. Anyway, so this is uh, Janixa Bravo directing, Ryan Johnson writing. A couple of things we find out pretty early on in the episode. She's been on the road for over a year now, right? We see that counter when we see Benjamin Bratt's <laughs> terrible year out on the road following her. <laughs> yeah, everywhere. he's definitely not enjoying his hotel stays. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Watching Burn Notice, <laughs> many, many reruns of Burn Notice. I was watching and, that and I'm like, that's what my hotel stays look like. <laughs> Poor guy. But he did it for a year. The other one of these mysteries in the show that's been solved here as well is, uh, you know, she's super paranoid. We see her actually have the conversation with Ron Perlman's playing Sterling Frost. His, um, the, he's the mob boss. We've heard on the phone only seeing him for the first time here in the show. Surprisingly, he disappears pretty quickly. I thought he'd be a bigger part of the show. You could see part of the reason, you know, the threat that he made against her is why she's been so paranoid. And it explains also the fact that it's been over a year. It explains this crazy journey she's been on across America because when you, uh, Think about where each episode took place. She's like hundreds of miles away from one location to the next. So it kind of explains the fact that, A, it's months in between when we're seeing her, basically, or about a month each time we see her again. And also, she's intentionally being completely erratic. She's picking random places on the map so that they don't follow her like a straight line across the country, for example. Right. So that explains some of this erraticness in the show. And not, like I mentioned, a hilarious montage of... Benjamin Bratt's character, Cliff, we got her. She used an ATM just down the road. Like day one, he almost catches her. Then it's like one month later, <laughs> almost catches her. And it's just like a year later. And he finally, finally catches up to her. <laughs> Let's see. She has eight murders in between the first and last episodes. She has eight episodes there. So eight murders in about a year. That's, uh, you know, for every 40 days you run into a murderer. Maybe, maybe that's possible. Maybe that's <laughs> yeah. It's like she was put on the earth to be the angel of revenge or something. Well, there's a theory, by the way, this is not even a joke. There's a theory going around that this is, she actually is a superhero and she doesn't know that she's a superhero, kind of evades capture. She evades death multiple times. But most importantly, last week specifically, she gets hit by a car and survives. She gets stabbed in the <laughs> chest and survives. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's awesome. I wonder so if maybe next she is season a superhero. she will, yeah, discover she's a superhero discover. next weekend. Yeah. You know, maybe. I would think that though if i was her i would have come up with that like i have a superpower it's a right. superpower which would make right. you a superhero if you implement it and she does that it would be cool she get an outfit benjamin bratt's character uh cliff is smart enough to realize uh, you know he goes to see the body and the body in the car is not hers she of course been so happy oh my god they said i'm dead i'm a jane doe now she's like i'm you know home free and hilariously, she's been in the hospital for two months. She's finally recovered. She's about to leave. And she says, well, thank you, Obamacare. <laughs> I didn't have to pay for my <laughs> hospital stay. And I love the security guard being like, how do you, like the, 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 the clerk being like, 
how do you think this works? Like, she's like, oh, I just thought you'd just take anybody off the street. I'm like, that's not how that works. Someone's been paying your bills. Yeah, like One a is, church. Like, it, he couldn't yeah, turn her exactly. away or something, she says. <laughs> exactly. He's like, you had a TV in your room. Exactly, exactly. Never ask questions about this. So that's the two things I was going to say. <laughs> One is she never asked about this. Like, that's pretty dumb of her to never thought that just maybe someone is, you know, uh, knows that she's there. And uh, the second thing that I think is uh, kind of uh, unanswered here, but kind of dumb also, uh, or silly, uh, intentionally, that she's been a Jane Doe this whole entire time. Like, what does she keep telling them? Like, oh, I still lost my memory. Like, months have gone by now. She hasn't made any progress at all. <laughs> and no they one's still kept have her. on her. Even if yeah, she said still... she lost her memory, somebody would right. try to figure out who she was. Exactly. We exactly. have a Jane Doe. She'd be, like, all over social media. Who is this woman? Do you know her? Right. She'll nope, be like, no, 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 don't put, don't put those pictures out there. No, <laughs> they're like, why? Why don't you want us to talk? Like, should we bring the local news in? You know, because they do that sometimes when there's yeah. someone like that. And then she's like, no, 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 please. No, don't. And they, no one asks any questions. But, you know, she walks out the door. And of course, she's figured it out before she walks out that there's Cliff waiting for her. That was and awesome, he, though. Yeah, that was awesome. I think it's so nice that he let her recover before, you know, meeting her at the door and dragging her out of there. Well, he didn't have a choice, right? He wanted to bring her out right away. Uh, it was actually uh, Sterling who, and that's basically what takes him over the edge, right? That uh, Sterling tells him he has to wait until she's well enough, which is funny because Sterling originally wanted to kill her, but now that he's cooled down and actually knows everything that happened you know, that night and what his, his son was involved with, he now wants to recruit her rather, but she still thinks he wants to kill her. But of course, simultaneously, that's this is actually the reason that Cliff wants to kill him, right? Is that he feels so betrayed by being out in, on the road, being Sterling's lapdog and sitting in his room watching Burn Notice reruns all the time. He's just completely tired of this. And uh, this ends up being his motive for murder. They go to Atlantic City. Turns out she's a Jersey girl. Her family lives in Atlantic City as well. Conveniently, I guess. There's a lot of convenient things that happen here in this, in this episode. But she does finally sit down with Sterling. And Sterling says that he doesn't want to kill her anymore. He actually wants to recruit her because the five families, these mob families are going to meet today. They're going to try to make a peace with him. A lot of people are going to be lying and he needs someone who's a human lie detector to suss out the truth in that situation. And that's when the lights go out as she's pulled this gun out of this gift that he supposedly gave her. He has a shocked expression on his face. So he obviously did not expect a gun to come out of that box. And then the lights go out, gun goes off, and then we see her run away in the dark and we see a smoking gun sitting on the table. And that's when it turns out we flash back like we've always done in these episodes and we see Benjamin Bratt is actually the one who set him up for this murder, like we kind of hinted at earlier. There's a great piece of dialogue where he's on the phone with Beatrix, this other mob boss, basically lays it out that he is so frustrated by this whole situation, him being this lapdog, and he says something interesting. He said, you treat somebody like a dog over and over again, they can be loyal like a dog or they can turn on you as well. And that's like basically where he's uh, come to. And he used to love him, but now he hates him. And then, of course, Beatrix says, well, we need to get rid of him. Cliff says to her that he can make it look like an accident. She goes, even an accident would be suspicious. And he's sitting in front of that hospital waiting for her to walk out one of these days after God knows how many days he's been doing this. And he's like, you know what? I know exactly the patsy we need for this. And of course, he starts the process of setting her up. The whole situation in the car, giving her the gun, was a way to get her fingerprints onto the gun. And then later on, we see that when Sterling is setting up that box to give her the present, he puts in a name tag. That's what he put inside of there, was a her old name tag. So he's basically saying that you're going to be my employee again. But of course, it got swapped out for the gun. And so when she pulls it out, 
that's when the lights go out. And of course, it looks on camera, even on the camera footage, until the light went out, it looked like she was pulling a gun on him. Although she didn't put the box there. So, hey, watch the whole video, people. They're not going to watch the whole video. They don't know her name still. And she's been in the hospital for months. Oh, they know who she is now. <laughs> now that they're looking for her <laughs> in the streets. Now they know. The glow-in-the-dark poker chip, by the way, uh, you know, this all comes out towards the end. But of course, it's pretty clear that the whole idea is that he's been holding the chip. So when the lights go out using the black light, he can identify exactly where he's sitting and shoot him in the dark. And that's what he does. Cliff kills Sterling. I actually thought at one point, like, oh, he's not really dead. She got ahead of this somehow. But no, he's dead. Shot him and killed him. I'm glad, though. She was going to be a slave to him. It's more fun to have her on the road, for sure. Yeah. This is pretty funny. Then we see (laughs) the, the sequence where she's trying to contact Agent Clark from episode five, who was played by Simon uh, Helberg, remembered some of the numbers or the shape of the numbers or something. And after trying lots of different phone numbers, she finally gets the right one. You know, interestingly, he answers the phone, tells her, you have to turn yourself in because that's the official phone. And then he calls her on his personal line. He's like, do not turn yourself in. <laughs> she doesn't run too far. It turns out she just basically stayed in the hotel <laughs> the whole time. She went into the uh, non-denominational prayer room and then worked her way into one of the uh, vacant hotel rooms. But eventually the maids will be back and she needs to find a way to get out of there. So she sneaks out with the bachelorette party. That was so funny. Yeah. (laughs) Her whole dance, like blending in with the girls with her, she's wearing a floral sequin dress and they're searching for her was amazing. She's got such great timing as a (laughs) comedian. Yeah. She's great at that. Then we get to another really interesting sequence. So, as she, you know, she escapes basically through the batch, bachelorette party. She gets, uh, importantly, I guess it turns out to be important later in the plot, she gets this dildo ring put on her finger that she can't get it off <laughs> for some reason. It jumps off the bus when she gets pretty close to her sister's house, walks the remainder of the way. She knows how to sneak into her sister, Emily, played by Clea Duvall. Her niece sees her sneaking across the lawn and crawling underneath the uh, patio warns her mother and her mother goes and intercepts her in the basement. And this is a really interesting interesting sequence. I like this whole backstory that they're fleshing in without telling us explicitly what they're talking about. This skill she has has damaged the family in some way, injured the dad. Maybe the dad lied about a business deal. Maybe it's infidelity. Her sister is basically not willing to forgive her. There's this really poignant moment towards the end of the episode where she says to her that, you know, you just go out there, you're swimming on your own out in this sea. Importantly, by the way, that we find out she's a strong swimmer. We knew that was going to come back as well. She basically says, maybe you have people out there who love you. You know, you're only there for a little while. And then you know what? Maybe you're doing some good, but stay out on the road. We don't want you back here. I liked seeing where she came from. I think that what's happening is somehow her truth telling or whatever was going on. I'm sure it was a gradual process before they got to this point. Right. Maybe she has been maybe causing drama where there doesn't need to be drama because she doesn't know how to let things go. I find her sister's reaction, I guess, valid. And the reason I say that is because she seems very hurt by her or her behavior in the past, but she's not really being aggressively hateful. So I thought that was interesting. And I, yeah, I'm curious, what did she do to, to, to break the camel's back? Right. Something that ruined her dad somehow. And that that's interesting. 
The other part of it is also something that's hinted at here that she had all that money she won when she was reading people at those poker tables. And I was like, why is she like living in this uh, trailer park if she, you know, won money? At some point she was successful until she got caught. And apparently she was sending that money home to her sister. And uh, it's an interesting little sore point going like, well, did you get my money at least? I think she really did want to ask her for the money, by the way, but she couldn't do it then afterwards. She goes, I just wanted to make sure you got it. But I don't think that's actually what she wanted. Yeah, her sister doesn't seem like she can't stand her. She right. seems more like she's fed up with her and she's doesn't just tired. Deal yes. with it, it's interesting because it's, it seemed very realistic. I believed it. Uh, considering how heightened the show usually is, this is actually pretty honest family dynamic there. And like you said, I don't think she seems vindictive. And I'm sure, by the way, this show is going to, as it has, going to evolve these characters very slowly. And uh, yeah, I look forward to it. I like, I like, I don't just like these type of procedural shows. You don't need to have it all laid out. It's going to be just be happening in the background while the you know main stories are unfolding. She what she really wants, by the way, that she does need desperately is to get on her dad's boat. So she gets the keys to the boat. But while she's out there, she contacts Cliff. The boat has a hole in it i think so i don't think it's seaworthy anymore and uh, cliff just happens to be on a yacht right on the same marina i thought she was playing cliff here but she really did still think that he like i would have thought he was definitely like my suspect number one considering he was standing right there when the shooting happened i was wondering how she didn't pick that up immediately she must have thought someone behind him maybe did it but how could she not pick it up he was accusing her as she ran out of the room I mean, if it was all a setup, then that does still make sense. But she should be a little more wary of him, I guess, unless she really, truly believes that he is so loyal to to Sterling. That he would spend a year on the road looking for her. It's very interesting to look at this scene because he's a believer. He knows what her powers are. So everything he says to her, she's not suspect suspicious of it because everything he says to her is the truth. For example, she goes, well, what happened with that? I saw the chip light up. I mean, where did the chip come from? He says, it was on the table. And she goes, why would there be a chip there? He goes, he always plays with the chip. And she goes, you're right. And if he always does it, then Beatrix would know about it. And he goes, yes, she does. Nothing he said is a lie. He's not incriminating himself. The one thing that he also, interestingly, he goes, why don't I just turn you in and you're, I get you out of my hair. I can just throw this, you know, throw you under the bus. Once again, he's being honest here. And then she says, because you loved him and you want to find out who really did this. And he does not say, I did love him or you're right. He says, what do we do now? Very important that he does not answer it because he knew she would know immediately. The show does that over and over again. It's really, really clever in the way it does that. She tries to lock her up. Probably being a kid who's been on one of these boats before, with growing up with a dad who had a boat like this, she knows how to jimmy the door open with a bottle opener. Just as the cops are arriving, she punches him in the eye with the, the dildo ring, which really messes <laughs> up his eye, by the way. His eye is really messed up at the end. I thought he lost an eye at one point. Yeah, I'm like, no, no, it, I, you could still see. Yeah, I had to go back and look at it. It's like it's like bloodshot, like when you get like a black eye from a. It's a serious black eye. Like basically, it's, it's inside. Very it's very like, disgusting. It's hemorrhaging inside his eyeball. Um, yeah, at one moment, I actually thought he had lost the eye, but it's just uh, really badly hemorrhaged. Yeah, because I was uh, like, he's way too calm for having lost his eye. But then I'm like, <laughs> no, he hasn't lost his eye. And then, of course, she jumps off the boat and uh, swims away because we already know she's a. A swimmer. Her dad used to drive the boat out and make the girl swim back to shore <laughs> just to uh, improve their, that's one way to improve their swimming skills. But uh, we knew that was going to come back and indeed it does. He's, her dad sounds abusive. Made the girls compete probably as well. So that's probably a whole other, there's probably a whole family dynamic that's going to be played out in 
season two. Yeah, this, so then she meets up with Agent Clark again. Cliff turned on Beatrix right away, turns out. He offers her a job with the FBI, which she turns down. And then Beatrix calls her up and offers her a job as well. And she destroys her phone and decides that she wants to be out on the road. It's pretty funny because Beatrix even says, what are you going to do? You're just going to be on the road forever? Look at that highway. Is that how you want to live your life? And she smashes the phone and turns down her job offer. I think that's the whole setup. This is her origin story. She's like, yeah, I do want to uh, be uh, out on the road by myself. And I think this is a direct wink at the audience, by the way, at the end of the episode. She says, how long do you think this is going to last? And I think that's like, how long do you think this show is going to last? And uh, she says, let's all find out together. <laughs> it's like turning to the audience and going, how long is the show going to last? And then, of course, they play Walk On by Neil Young. By the way, just a little meta commentary here. Neil Young in 1972 had Harvest, which was a huge success. The number one album of the year, by the way, best-selling album of 1972. He won a Grammy Award and he immediately rejected his fame and made three less commercial records. This is the middle of that period on the beach in 1975 is the name of the album on the beach. The song is called Walk On. And the song explicitly in this album is about like him being in isolation, rejecting the world, living on the beach by himself with very few people around him. She is doing the same thing. She's like, I'm going on the road. <laughs> I'm going to walk on by myself. And that's literally where we end. Very excited it's coming back for another season because it is really good. I really didn't know about it until you like brought it up. I don't know about this, but then when I realized what it was, it's kind of like a road trip, murder mystery. Yeah. I think this is a great formula for the show, uh, for a show. You can imagine them making these mostly, you know, mystery of the weeks. They are like little Rubik's, like little, um, these little contraptions that kind of fold over on top of themselves. You can imagine them coming up with really clever scenarios week after week after week. And then they have these underlying mysteries. You know, obviously she's on the run now from all five families. So it's basically the same stakes at the beginning of the season, but even more so. We have the open questions of like her history. What, you know, how did she lose this money she made leading up to now? What happened with her family? Why is she alienated from them? Obviously a mystery they leave unresolved, I should say, is what did she see on that video at the very beginning of this whole show? What is that fundamental thing that has set all these murders in motion? which we still don't know about because we even hear it hinted at again here that Sterling says, if I had seen what you saw in that video, I would have done the same thing you did. Once again, we do not know what it is, but whatever it is, it's really terrible. <laughs> and of course, they can introduce other characters to the show too. She could keep running into some people again. They could bring in some of the favorite characters we saw again, like maybe that uh, trucker uh, that she ran into in episode two comes back in the future. They or that guy she had a love affair with for uh, oh, that, mountain that man. Yeah. She could, she could go back out to Colorado. <laughs> yeah. That when the spring comes, and maybe he'll be back him again. They could exactly. be back together for a little bit. That was a fun episode. Yeah. Very fun. Yes. Yeah. And I like, i like for all the reasons you said, I think this is just like an endlessly fun watch beyond that. I, I kind of like the subtext of the show as well. Even the bad people here have been humanized. I think about the episode with uh barbecue because we know these characters can't lie in front of her. And if they lie, you know, her eye twitches or she just literally can't resist just screaming out bullshit whenever someone lies. So we always know when they're telling the truth and not. And for example, that guy says, I love my brother. I miss him. She does not call bullshit on that. And, and this happens multiple times throughout the show, by the way, where people who are the bad guys feel bad about what they've done. And yet they've allowed themselves to do these horrible things, usually because they're just being goddamn greedy. <laughs> they're like, I miss my brother. You know, I had to pay back that loan one way or the other. So I uh, 
killed him. I murdered my brother. And like you were saying before, it's as if Charlie is this avenging angel. Like she's there to correct these people's sins, right? It's like, it really is the like <laughs> highway to heaven, right? There's another one of these very similar <laughs> shows, by the way. Uh, she's not an angel boy. Or is she? Is she a superhero? Is she an angel? I guess we won't know until next season. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Benjamin Bratt's going to come back, maybe wearing an eye patch. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. So Sunday night, we have the finale, the season finale of The Last of Us. We'll be discussing that as well. I do love that show. So many things coming out next week that are on my radar, but I'll do my previews of stuff to watch next week when we get back together on Monday. Okay, great. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.